Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom Walking the Path with the Buddha Today we're going to be discussing loving kindness meditation why we should do loving kindness meditation what's the benefit and then we're actually going to do a session of loving kindness meditation together as a group But before we get into loving kindness meditation as part of understanding why we're actually doing loving kindness meditation I would like to discuss real briefly the three poisons and i would like to go into the four noble truths and the four noble truths is such an important discourse such an important teaching to understand as part of gotama buddha's teachings in fact that was his very first discourse upon returning back to his friends and colleagues that he ended up eventually becoming their teacher he shared the four noble truths as the very first discourse because everything else that he taught is built on top of the four noble truths so today we're going to be covering a lot of ground the three poisons the four noble truths we're probably even going to touch on the three universal truths and then get into loving kindness meditation so let's get started what the mind has as part of its rebirth is what we call the three poisons craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality the other way that people refer to the three poisons is greed hatred and delusion or the unknowing of true reality some people call these not only the three poisons but maybe the three unwholesome roots or you may even hear these called the defilements or the three defilements essentially these are kind of like unwholesome qualities of the mind and it's these three poisons or these three unwholesome roots which are the unwholesome roots that lead to all unwholesome karma so these three poisons create unwholesome decisions as we live with these unwholesome roots or these three poisons in the mind our decisions and what we do in life are influenced through these three poisons and therefore we create decisions that lead to unwholesome results so the primary goal of the practice of gotama buddha's teachings are to eliminate these three poisons of craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality also described as greed hatred and delusion or unknowing of true reality now each of these three poisons actually have an antidote and a way to remedy these three poisons and to reduce and then ultimately eliminate them so with craving craving is essentially this outward seeking for satisfaction 
that the mind has this tendency to grasp or hold, has desire, this mental longing, this craving, this strong eagerness to hold on to things and seek outward satisfaction and think that if we just have this next thing, the mind can be pleased, the mind will be happy. And then we get that and then the mind wants something else and something else and something else. This is craving. And the way that we remedy that is we practice generosity by sharing. Because by sharing, we kind of let things go. We don't hold on to things so tightly. We share our food. We share our money. We share our time, our effort. We essentially realize that we're part of this society of interconnected beings. And by just hoarding everything to ourselves, doesn't promote openness and friendliness and a mind that is able to just let things go. So generosity is the main antidote. Sharing will help to train the mind to let go. But then we also use breathing mindfulness meditation, which is part of what we're going to probably do today. Then the next poison is anger or hatred. The way that this manifest is through hostility, through aggression, through ill will. We kind of look for enemies around us and we're always kind of walling ourselves off from other people, kind of looking for in a fearful way of when the next person's going to kind of offend us. And then we kind of react out of this anger, out of this hostility, rather than being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, which would be an enlightened mind. So this poison of hatred or anger results in us not being able to fully experience openness in relationships and just getting along with all beings, being peaceful, being kind, being friendly, being respectful, being appreciative, having gratitude, being polite. If we practice those qualities, then this poison of hatred and anger gets less and less and less. So we encompass that remedy for this poison of hatred or anger in what's called loving kindness. Practicing loving kindness in daily life, loving kindness is this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. If we practice that in daily life, then we're practicing being polite, being kind, being friendly, being respectful, having gratitude and appreciation. We're thanking people regularly. We're being humble. We're being peaceful. We're, we're showing goodwill, active goodwill towards all beings. That's the practice of loving kindness. But in order to actually practice that, you need to have cultivated that in the mind. And then what we do is we use loving kindness meditation as a practice to actually cultivate and build up this active goodwill in the mind so that we can then practice it in daily life as we go through our different activities, whether we're at the grocery store, at the bank, whether we're at work, whether we're waiting in traffic, we do it with a mind of loving kindness, active goodwill towards all beings. And then of course, this third poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, this is the mind not knowing about things like the three universal truths or the four noble truths or the eightfold path or the five precepts or the three poisons or the natural law of gamma or all of these things that you're learning Gautama Buddha's teachings this is reality 
this is true reality. And by learning these things and seeing the truth and how they actually work to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life, you gain more and more wisdom. Through observing these teachings in practice and knowing that they're truth, not believing your teacher that they're truth, but actually learning them and applying the teachings in everyday life and you knowing 100% that all of these teachings are truths, then you are gaining more wisdom and then the mind starts to eliminate this poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality and the mind starts functioning through these new wisdoms and what you'll notice is the mind becomes more and more enlightened because you're now functioning with more wisdom. The wisdom of the three universal truths, the wisdom of the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the three poisons, the natural law of gamma. The more you learn all of these things and all the other things I have to teach you in this program, the more your mind will awaken because the mind will function through this new wisdom. And part of that wisdom is learning meditation and practicing meditation. Because without these teachings, not only the ones I've mentioned so far, but learning breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation and actually practicing those, you wouldn't be able to gain the wisdom that you need in order to eliminate this third poison of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And without that, without learning these teachings, you wouldn't even know about craving anger or greed and hatred. So it's really this third poison that is the primary antidote that we need to institute in order for us to really have any aspirations to actually eliminate these other poisons. Because without the Buddhist teachings and without gaining this wisdom, you would never have any chance to actually eliminate the poison of craving because you don't even know it exists or you wouldn't know about eliminating the poison of hatred or anger because you don't even know it exists and what remedies there are. So it's this third poison that we're addressing in all of these talks and all of your reading and listening to the podcast and watching the videos that I share, reading the posts on the Facebook group. All of these things are helping to build your wisdom. But again, you can't believe what I say you need to actually learn and practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. So as I mentioned, since many of you guys have joined kind of at different points during the program, and you may or may not have been involved in the talk that I did on chapter four about the three universal truths and the four noble truths, I would like to revisit that with you today and give you a chance to learn that kind of firsthand and also ask questions. So that's where I'm going to start today. So let's talk about the three universal truths. The first universal truth is called impermanence. The teaching of impermanence is that there's no constant, steady, fixed state. Everything is constantly changing. Okay. Now, remember, you don't want to believe any of these teachings. You want to look at them in practice so that you can see that they're truth. So here you hear the first universal truth is impermanence, that the Buddha says that everything's in this constant, steady uh, state of change. There's no permanent state. 
So rather than believing that, you now investigate this on your own. And what you try to do is you essentially try to disprove the Buddha. Because if you can determine that there's something that's permanent, then that means the Buddha's wrong, right? So the way that you actually prove that this is true and you gain the wisdom that everything is impermanent is you try to find something that's permanent. So think through your mind and try to determine what's been permanent in your life. And I'll just kind of ask you a few questions as a way for you to reflect on this. Is your hair permanent? Has it been the same length your entire life? The same length, the same color, the same texture? No, it's always constantly changing. What about your physical body? Has the physical body been the same or has it changed since you were born? Of course, it's changed, right? What about your job? Is your job permanent? Well, we know that's not true because pretty much everybody's at home right now. And if you work at home, whatever job you have, it's not the same job you've had your entire life. So we have multiple different jobs. Our incomes go up and down. Even our own life, our own life isn't permanent. We will die at some point and our life is not permanent. Our parents are not permanent. Our relationships are not permanent. We've had various relationships all throughout our life. Our clothes are not permanent. They're constantly changing. There are certain clothes that we don't wear anymore. There are certain clothes that we have now that we won't have later. So if you look at your life, you'll notice that everything is impermanent, including your different thoughts like sadness, anger, frustration, all of these feelings that you have in the mind they're constantly changing from one thought to the next, one feeling to the next. So this is how you can understand that impermanence is true 100%. But you still can't take my word for it. If you don't understand that impermanence is 100% a universal truth, you need to investigate this on your own and walk around for one day, two days, five days, five weeks, however long it takes until you ingrain in your mind that you can't find anything in this world that's permanent. So is there anyone on social media or in the classroom that has something that they're questioning that they feel is permanent and may not be impermanent? I asked my friend this the other day uh, and he gave an interesting answer. A friend of mine said, a bloodline is permanent. A bloodline is permanent? No, I said a bloodline. But then I, I responded, well, a, a bloodline is actually just an idea, right? And a, it's a changing idea. A bloodline? You mean so like blood, like permanent. like the blood in the body? Oh, no, it's in like a, a family bloodline. Oh, that's not permanent. That's so always like changing. The, the Royland's bloodline. Oh, that's completely changing, right? Like, look, I've got German, Irish, Native American. I don't know what else is in there. You know, my son's got all those things plus Thai, right? The bloodline is constantly changing. (laughs) That's one of the most mixed things that's not constant and steady ever. (laughs) That's what Hitler tried to do, right? Like Hitler tried to create a consistent bloodline which we're going to get to when we talk about the Four Noble Truths of why his mind was doing that. It's interesting how the mind tries to make permanence where there isn't any. 
Yes. Are we trying to lay these labels on top of things as a way to see them as permanent? And actually, it's nothing permanent about bloodline at all. It's just, just a perception. So now let's move on to the second universal truth, which is discontentedness. Essentially, there's three feelings that the Buddha described as discontent. The word that's in the Pali text is dukkha. And most people translate this to suffering. If you've ever studied Gautama Buddha's teachings outside of my uh, resources and classes, you've probably heard people say that the goal of Gautama Buddha's teachings is to eliminate suffering. But suffering doesn't fully capture what the Buddha was talking about when he used the word dukkha. Because when he described what dukkha is, he said there's three feelings. There's painful feelings like sadness, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, fear. These are all painful. He also talked about pleasant feelings, things like happiness, excitement, elation. And then he talked about feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, kind of like uncomfortable or unsatisfying. Kind of like if a stranger sat really close to you on a bus, it's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's neither painful nor pleasant, right? And that's for some cultures. For other cultures, they've trained their mind that being up close together, stuffed in a train or on a bus is normal and their mind is perfectly content with that because it's normal. But for most cultures in the West, sitting next to someone that close as a stranger, it would create some unpleasantness in the mind. This is the third feeling that the Buddha described is neither painful nor pleasant. So these three feelings, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, these are all temporary, impermanent feelings that the mind cycles through. It goes from sadness to happiness to boredom to shyness to loneliness to jealousy to guilt to shame. And of course, in there, in between at different periods, there's some peacefulness and some calmness, but essentially the nature of the unenlightened mind is it's gonna constantly move through these various impermanent feelings. This is discontentedness, okay? It's not suffering because if you're happy or you're excited, you wouldn't say you were suffering and, and that's a pleasant feeling. If I was shy, I wouldn't say I was suffering, but that's considered kind of like a feeling that's neither painful nor pleasant. So suffering only describes this first feeling that the Buddha talked about, which is painful feelings. So if we use this word suffering, it only captures one third of what the Buddha is talking about. The other 66% isn't described in the word suffering. So what the Buddha is really talking about that we need to eliminate in the mind is discontentedness. The painful feelings, the pleasant feelings, and the feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Now you heard me talk about happiness as a discontent feeling. The reason why happiness is discontent is because of the nature of being impermanent. The mind has certain conditions. If I get to go outside today, I will be happy. Or if I get this new salary, the mind will be happy. Or if I get this new job, the mind will be happy. Or if I get this new girlfriend, the mind will be happy. It's based on a certain condition. And once that condition's fulfilled, maybe the mind is happy for a temporary period of time, 
but then those pleasant feelings wear off and now the mind isn't peaceful, serene, calm, and content anymore because that happiness was impermanent. So a lot of people go around in life thinking that the goal in life is to be happy and everybody just wants to be happy and they crave happiness. And the more they crave it, the more they can't get it because the more the mind wants to be happy, as soon as it achieves whatever it achieves and those pleasant feelings wear off, then the mind oftentimes goes to sadness or despair or loneliness or boredom or something else. So the Buddha described that we need to bring the mind to the middle where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Not living in the sadness, the loneliness, the despair, the frustration, but also not living in this and holding on to this happiness, this excitement, this elation, but bringing the mind to the middle. So someone who's enlightened, they'll laugh, they'll joke, but then they'll be able to bring the mind right back to the middle. There's not these dwelling in sad feelings and dwelling in the happy feelings. Their mind is permanently in the middle where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So this second universal truth is essentially describing the unenlightened mind that it goes through these three feelings, which are painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So we've got sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears. We've got things like happiness, excitement, elation, boredom, loneliness, shyness. These are all discontent feelings that the mind can eliminate as part of learning and practicing these teachings. So this is the second universal truth and the way that you determine that this is truth is you say okay david you just spent three to five minutes explaining discontentedness and the buddha gave you three feelings that the mind experiences once again try to disprove the buddha he describes your mind as having painful feelings pleasant feelings or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant are there any other feelings that are experienced in the mind that doesn't fit into one of these three categories. And if you take some time and you try to investigate all the different feelings that you experience in the mind, what you'll notice is that all these feelings fit into these three categories. Painful, pleasant, and neither painful nor pleasant. So that's the second universal truth. The third universal truth is called non-self. This is something that we discuss usually later in practice as you're further along on the path, but I'll just kind of explain it generally here. The teaching of non-self is that we hold this concept of a self in the mind, this permanent self, this everlasting, never-changing self, like James is here, or Max is here, or David is here. We get these names at birth and we start assigning a identity, an image, there's a certain ego that gets wrapped around who we think we are. And we think that there's this permanent self, but because we hold this concept of a permanent self in the mind, we then become defensive. We become hostile. We become 
agitated if somebody kind of affects the ego or, if, or says something about our self-image or our identity that doesn't agree with us. And because this is displeasing to the mind, the mind reacts out of hostility or aggression or anger. And until we remove this concept of a self from the mind, then the mind can't reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And there's certain teachings that we share that help you understand that there is no permanent self so that you can slowly eradicate this and dissolve the self in what we say is realize non-self. Because it's one thing to understand the teaching of non-self, but it's a whole other thing to actually practice the teachings so that you can actually realize it in the mind. So realizing non-self is essentially dissolving the ego, dissolving the sense of a self, dissolving the self-identity and the self-image, and just being peaceful, calm, serene, and content, knowing that there is no permanent self here. And one of the ways that I suggest to you to practice this so that you know that the Buddha is, is truth is look at your life when you were five years old, 13 years old, 25 years old, however old you are now, and look back. And if you look back, you'll see that how you viewed yourself and how you viewed the image of yourself has changed over time. It's constantly changing. If you were to describe yourself as a five-year-old kid or a 15-year-old teenager or a 25-year-old uh, young adult, you would have described yourself differently each time. And that's because there is no permanent self. The description of what you think of a self just constantly keeps changing. That's one way you can see that there is no permanent self. Another way is you can point. I usually ask students, where are you? Like, where is James? Where is Max? You know, point to you, point to James. And usually a student will kind of point to their chest. And I say, no, that's your shirt. So let's just imagine we take off your shirt. Now point to James. And then say the student, you know, points again to the chest. No, that's your skin. You know, take, take that off. You know, where are you? And then they usually will point to them, their chest again. And uh, we'll say, no, that's the bones. That's the muscles. You know, let's take that stuff out of there. And then they point again and say, no, that's your heart, your lungs. There's organs. There's fluid in there. You know, where are you? Right? There is no permanent you. It just lives in the mind. And because of this, the mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content because we're always on guard looking out for where's the next person that's going to offend me. And then when they do and the mind is displeased, we react out of anger and hostility and aggression rather than if somebody says something negative to us, just, okay, just smiling and knowing or whatever you do, but just knowing that that's them and it's not you because there is no you. So if somebody says, ah, David, you look silly wearing those white pajamas. They're not pajamas, but wearing those white pajamas and a shaved head. Okay, that's their opinion. What they say doesn't affect me because there is no me, right? So non-self is a teaching that you need to learn further and further and further and then learn how to practice it deeper and deeper and deeper. Are there any questions on the three universal truths before we go into the four noble truths? I'd like to highlight the really important point you made about how 
discontentedness actually comprises these three different kinds of feeling. The unpleasant, which I think most people can relate to pretty easily. The pleasant and how actually that is also discontentedness. But also this third one, which is feelings that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And I have a question, which is how would you explain to or convince someone that these two are discontentedness? Because they could say, yeah, okay, well, not really feeling anything right now, a bit, a bit shy, a bit bored, but I'm not suffering, I'm not major uncomfortable, and I'm not bouncing off the walls either. So what's the problem? Yeah, the mind is just discontent. It's, you know, say it's lonely or it's shy. It's it's not calm. It's not peaceful. It's not serene. It's not content. You know, when we're shy, we kind of have this icky feeling inside, like we don't want to be close to another person or we don't want to speak up. Um, there's some shyness there. Or if we're lonely, we're just kind of like feeling kind of a little bit miserable, not feeling good, you know. We may not say that we're suffering. That's why I don't use that word. But the mind is discontent, right? And then the same thing like with the pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation. Some people think this is the goal of life. But one of the ways you can see that the mind is discontent is think about times where you might have been or you have actually seen somebody else be very excited, very elated, right? The mind just goes and goes and goes with all this excitement then they usually kind of trip and fall or they you know they hit a table and they bump into something and they hit their head or you know they break a heel if they're wearing high heels because there's so much excitement and the mind isn't calm and content so there's actually bad things that happen to us when our mind is is so excited and so happy right so this feeling of happiness or excitement or elation is discontent because the mind doesn't have awareness of mind and it can lead to unhelpful decisions that cause us problems. So this is another reason why happiness, excitement, and elation is discontent. Not only because it's impermanent. Yes, they are impermanent and they're based on certain conditions that when those conditions are removed, then the mind is no longer in that mind state. It's not permanent. But also when the mind is happy, excited, elated, then you're going to make decisions almost like you're heedless, unaware, unalert, unattentive. And now bad things can happen because we're just so excited. Right. I can tell you guys a little story. Yes. The first time I came to Thailand in December 2002, I was coming here to actually marry a woman. And I sat down in this very remote village. They hadn't seen a, a white person in 20 years is what they told me. This is back in 2002. People were going around like touching my skin. And at that time I had longer hair. So they were running their hands through my hair. It was like I was like Brad Pitt or something like a superstar celebrity in the village. And people hadn't seen white skin. And like, you know, some of those people that were less than 20 years old had never seen a white person before. Right. So I sat down with the father of my soon-to-be wife. I wide him, and I was on the floor, and told him how appreciative I was for them to bring me to their house and host the wedding and all the effort that they had gone to to plan the wedding and invite people to come and so forth because there was a lot of effort from the whole village to plan this wedding. 
And then towards the end, I said, you know, I'm so excited to marry your daughter. And he said, why? Why do you have to be excited to marry my daughter? And at that time, I didn't understand what he was saying and what he meant. I was just like, I thought that was like a nice thing to say. Like, I'm kind of excited. I'm looking forward to marrying your daughter. And he was like, yeah, you don't need to be excited. Like, there's no reason to be excited. Like, you're just marrying my daughter. And like, I didn't understand it at that point. But now, all these years later, having studied the Buddhist teachings and understand that excitement is not the desired mind state, right? Like we tend to go around and we try to make people excited. And if somebody comes to greet us and they're like, oh, James, so nice to meet you. I haven't seen you in so long. Oh my God, give me a hug. Where have you been? Oh, right? Like, like in our culture, we think that that's great. Like this person's putting on a good face and like that's the way we should be. But you'll never see that in a Thai culture, in Buddhist culture. It's just like, oh, Sawadee Nice to see you. Haven't seen you for three or four years, James. How you been? Right? There's no need for all this excitement and animation because the mind just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and it's discontent. So this is why peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. We don't need to be excited, even missing people. When, you know, in our culture, we say, oh, Max, I haven't seen you so long. I've missed you. When you're missing people, the mind is discontent, right? If you have a wife or kids and you go on a business trip, you're away for a week or two and you're missing your children, you're missing your family, you're missing your partner, the mind is discontent. We tell people like, I missed you. And we think that that's the polite thing to say. And that shows that we love you by saying, I miss you. But really all that's showing is, your mind's discontent that what do you mean you've you've gone for a week or two and you can't be content and peaceful by yourself like you have to miss us like like nobody's going to say that but essentially the mind should get to a point where it recognizes when it leaves for this one or two week business trip that that's impermanent that we will rejoin and you don't have to miss us extensively you don't have to call us every three hours to check on how we're doing. You go do your stuff, be peaceful, calm, serene, and content for a week or two, and then we rejoin and we're back together as a family. No big deal. So we say things in our culture all the time, we don't realize what we're actually saying is my mind is discontent when we tell people we're missing them. Or when we say, oh, I'm so excited to see you. What you're really saying is your mind is discontent, right? And it doesn't mean that you're wrong or you've done anything wrong. It just means that your mind is grasping, it's holding, it's craving for something. And therefore, it's not content. It's missing my family. It's craving my family. Therefore, it's not content. Or I'm really excited to marry this woman and I can't be content until I do this. And then once I marry her, then maybe six months later, I'm bored and I don't want to be married to her anymore right? Because this is the mind's craving. So this will take us into the Four Noble Truths, right? So let's talk about the Four Noble Truths. I needed to teach you the three universal truths so that you could understand the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is all unenlightened beings 
will experience discontentedness of mind. So if you experience anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears, happiness, excitement, elation, loneliness, boredom, shyness, all of these feelings, jealousy, you're missing people, this is a discontent mind. And you know that you're not yet enlightened. No big deal. There's lots of unenlightened people in the world. Okay, so all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness of mind. The second noble truth is you cause your own discontent mind because the mind craves permanence when everything is impermanent. Let me give you an example. If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you guys get together, at the beginning of the relationship, everything's usually wonderful. It's so wonderful. All you're interested in is getting to know each other. You go out to the park, you go out for coffee, you go to the movies, you go to a restaurant. The conversation is wonderful. Everybody's having a great time. And you're like, wow, this feels really good. And you guys get deeper and deeper and deeper into a relationship. The mind gets more and more and more attached. And eventually there's some discontentedness, some disagreement. And it leads to anger, frustration, irritation. And the relationship will oftentimes separate because of this. Well, when that happens, the mind then becomes either sad or lonely or frustrated or angered. The reason why is not because the other person left or you left the other person. The reason why the mind is sad, anger, frustrated, lonely, whatever, is because your mind had this craving. It had this attachment. It had this desire for permanence. It had this longing, this strong eagerness for this relationship to be permanent. And then when it wasn't, either you separated because of a disagreement or maybe even there's a death. Maybe you're with somebody for 20, 30 years and then one of you die first. When that sadness and that loneliness, that boredom, that frustration sets in, that's the mind holding on. That's the craving, the desire, the attachment, the longing, the strong eagerness for permanence. The mind craves permanence. And then because everything is impermanent and everything's changing, the mind then becomes sad, frustrated, angry, irritated, annoyed, bored, lonely, what have you. So we essentially cause these feelings ourselves because we allow the mind to hold on and have this longing and the strong eagerness. Another example would be, like say I, I bought a sports car, a brand new sports car, and I take this sports car out, I drive it around, I park it at the store, and then when I go inside and I come out, there's a scratch on the car. And when I come out, say I'm like really frustrated, I'm really angry, I'm looking for the people who scratched my car, thinking somebody did this on purpose, and I just wanna solve this problem by maybe beating them up, right? or getting in a fight or a verbal fight or whatever. 
This is the mind reacting with anger, hostility, aggression, because the mind was craving permanence. The mind wanted this car to look permanently beautiful. And when we see that scratch, the mind becomes aggressive or hostile. Where somebody else might come out of the store, like let's say Max comes out of the store and he sees the scratch and he's like, oh, thank goodness I got insurance. I'll take my car down and get it fixed. So this is somebody who's responding to the situation with a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind. And rather than reacting out of hostility and anger because the mind is craving permanence. So the second example is someone who's maybe trained their mind and recognized even probably when they were signing the papers for the brand new car, that this car is not always going to look like this, right? So this is a couple of examples. And you could go through multiple examples in your life where you were either angry, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, feeling guilt or shame or fear or lonely or bored. And you can see how you're causing your mind to be discontent. Let's use the example of the quarantine since most of the world is quarantined right now or in their houses, in their dwellings. Some people are very bored, very lonely, very frustrated, very angry. Why? Because their mind is craving. It has this longing, this strong eagerness to go outside. It expects permanence. The mind was in this life, going to work, seeing friends, going to restaurants, going to school, having all these daily activities, and it craves that permanence. And now because of impermanence, and now people are being asked to stay inside in most countries, the mind is discontent. The mind is saying, no, 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 I want to be outside. I'm craving to be outside. I'm craving and longing and having this strong eagerness to do all these things that I used to do. This is why the mind becomes lonely, bored, sad, anger, and frustrated. And the person's mind is causing it themselves because they're allowing the mind to be holding on with this longing and strong eagerness, essentially attachment. This is craving, desire, attachment. Okay, so this is the second noble truth. We cause our own discontent mind because the mind has this craving, this longing, this strong eagerness for permanence. Essentially, the mind does not like impermanence. And right now in the world, there's a bunch of impermanence everywhere. It's really shaken up the world. And this is why we have so many discontent minds around the world. The beauty about the second noble truth that we cause this discontentness ourselves is the third noble truth that we can eliminate the discontent mind because we cause it. This is why the Buddhist teachings are so effective at creating a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because we're causing all this discontentness. We can actually eliminate it. So the third noble truth is we can eliminate 100% of discontentedness by eliminating craving eliminating desire, eliminating attachment, essentially eliminating the mind's craving for permanence by training the mind to let go and not hold on so tightly, then we can eliminate the discontent mind. 
This is the third noble truth. This is why the first poison of craving, we practice generosity. We practice breathing mindfulness meditation so that when thoughts, ideas, perceptions come into the mind, we train the mind to let them go. So that we constantly train the mind through multiple meditation sessions that as we're meditating and thoughts come into the mind, we train the mind to let it go, let it go, let it go. Cut off those thoughts. The mind goes to the past, cut it off, bring it back to the breath. The mind goes to the future, cut it off, bring it back to the breath. The mind has thoughts or ideas or perceptions, cut it off, let it go, bring the mind back to the breath. And by doing this over multiple, multiple sessions, then the benefits of that training, you get to realize that in daily life where when certain things happen that are displeasing to the mind, you can let it go. You can cut it off so that the mind doesn't become discontent. So because the second noble truth, we're causing our own discontent mind, the third noble truth, we can eliminate it through training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness. That's the third noble truth. That's why we practice generosity and breathing mindfulness meditation. And then the fourth noble truth is the way leading to the complete elimination of a discontent mind is to practice the eightfold path. This is a different teaching that we cover in chapter five is eight steps that lead to an enlightened mind. An enlightened mind isn't going to get angry. It isn't going to get frustrated. It isn't going to get irritated or annoyed. It's not going to be bored or lonely. It's not going to be shy. It's not going to feel guilt or shame. It's not going to have this extreme excitement and elation. A enlightened mind is not going to experience any of those discontent feelings. Of course, they did previous before they worked their way to enlightenment. So they know what discontentness feels like. And that's why once you ultimately attain enlightenment, you will know it for yourself pretty much because you will not experience any discontentness. You won't experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, loneliness, boredom, guilt, shame, fears, all of these discontent emotions. This is how people knew that Gautama Buddha was in fact a Buddha because his teachings led them from this discontent mind that they already understood and lived with for however many years. And then as their mind slowly, gradually improved to the condition of an enlightened mind, that's how they were aware that, wow, I learned with this teacher and his teachings took me exactly to where he said they would, to this enlightened mind that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where it never experiences sadness, anger, frustration, and all of these other discontent emotions and feelings. So this is the Four Noble Truths. Essentially, what the Buddha is saying in his Four Noble Truths is take responsibility for your own mind. Oftentimes, when we get angry or we get frustrated or we have any other discontent feelings, we oftentimes will blame other people. I'm angry because he didn't pay me my money. I'm frustrated because I got fired from my job. He fired me. I did a good job. I'm a good employee. Why would he fire me? He made me frustrated. 
he made me angry. No, that person didn't make you angry. We made ourselves angry because we were craving and wanting to hold on to this job so badly. And because the mind was so attached and was expecting permanence, when something changed, then the mind became discontent. So essentially what the Four Noble Truths is teaching you is take responsibility for your own mind, take responsibility for your own life, train the mind to eliminate this craving, this desire, this attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness, and practice the Eightfold Path, which will lead to an enlightened mind where you never experience any of these discontent feelings. Okay, any questions on any of this? Just a comment for me. Um, the Four Noble Truths was part of the first discourse ever given by the Buddha, I believe. That's right. So it's pretty fundamental. Um, is there anything really that he taught that falls outside of the Four Noble Truths? Well, everything is built on the Four Noble Truths, right? Because if you're going to undergo this training where you're training the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, but you firmly feel that it's other people's fault of why your mind is angry, then why would you ever train your mind? Then you would train everybody else's mind. It's everybody else's fault. It's not my fault. I'm perfect. It's everyone else's fault. Let's go train all of those people to do things my way, and then I won't be angry anymore. But that's not possible because then there's 7.5 billion people in the world. There's constantly new people being born all the time. We can't train them all to do it our way, but we can train our mind. So this is the first step of the Eightfold Path, which is right view. Having the right view that you cause your own discontentness, that you can eliminate it. Taking responsibility for your own mind. If you lacked responsibility for your own mind, and you didn't see it as if you are causing your own mind to be angry, frustrated, irritated, then why would you ever undergo training? Why would we meditate and train our mind when it's everyone else's fault? You see what I'm saying? So that's why right view is so important. The Four Noble Truths is so important that we understand that we are causing our own discontentness of mind Anytime we're angry, frustrated, irritated, bored, lonely, shy, feeling guilt or shame or fear, excitement, elation, it's always from our own craving, our own desire, our own attachment, this longing, this strong eagerness. Everything else is built on top of that. Because remember, when the Buddha left all of his friends, they were all hanging themselves upside down from trees. They were starving their bodies. They were doing all these horrible things to the body, thinking that by training the body to undergo all of this pain and misery, that that was going to benefit the mind. So when he came back to teach them, hold on a second, you guys have got it wrong. It's not about training the physical body and disparaging the body and putting it through all these torturous things. What this training is about to get to enlightenment is accepting responsibility that it's the mind that's causing all these problems. It's not the body. So his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, essentially establishing right view, was like revolutionary for these first five aesthetics that he started teaching. And 
you know, that's what really sets up all the rest of his teachings is by taking responsibility for our own mind, essentially our own life and all the decisions in our life, then we can undergo the training. We have the right view that now we accept responsibility for our own mind and our own life. Now we can actively take steps to learn the teachings and practice the teachings to actually get to a point where we can train this mind so that then we can control it. And the interesting thing about taking responsibility, I find, is that the results are instantaneous. So when we shift from saying, right, who can I blame for this that I'm feeling to how have I caused this myself? Yes. It, it almost intent because we're no longer getting angry at someone else. We're actually looking at ourselves and going, hmm, okay, what did I do? And it's like some kind of miracle that we're not nearly as angry at ourselves, hopefully, that we might be if we were angry at someone else. And that right there is proof that we are doing it to ourselves. Right. And this and this has a snowball effect, right? Because if you realize that you're causing your own anger, you're causing your own frustration, you're causing your own boredom and loneliness, when you know that all of these discontent emotions are being caused by you, why would you do that to yourself? It's like stabbing yourself with a knife. So when you realize that your anger is being caused by you and not the other person, immediately you can almost catch yourself more quickly, more readily before the anger arises because it's like, I don't want to put myself through that, right? So in the past, we might feel like we need to be angry in order to show this person how wrong they are and they've caused me to be angry. And now the more angry I get, the more likely I am for you to do what I need you to do. Right. Some cultures were taught this way, that the more hostile we become, the more angry, the more frustrated we show that we are, the more likely we are to get the results that we desire. Right. So we become more angry and hostile. But then when we're done with that, we're usually like depleted. Right. We're like the anger and frustration was so intense that we just get to the point where, oh, my God, like that was like. Like you're almost shaking sometimes. I know for me in the past, sometimes I would get so angry, I would almost be shaking. Well, once you realize that you're causing all this yourself, it's like, why would you ever do that to yourself? It's like stabbing yourself with a knife. So right when you feel the anger start to arise, you know that that's you that's causing that. And then like you said, Max, you start investigating and looking inward for where's the solution for these problems because the solution is not out here. It's not out here training my wife to do things my way or training my son to do things my way. It's training my mind to not be affected by them just being normal people and doing whatever they would like to do. So by looking inward and investigating in your mind, what are the attachments? This is gonna lead us to Sunday. Sunday chapter 12, we're gonna be talking about how to identify your attachments. Because how could you ever eliminate your attachments if you can't identify them? So chapter 12, identifying your attachments, is a crucial ability and skill to develop. Next to meditation, developing the ability to identify your attachments is probably the second best thing you could ever do in this practice so that as soon as you get angry, as soon as you feel the frustration or irritation or any other discontentness of mine, you can start looking inward and discover what is it that I'm doing 
What is the mind holding on to that's causing this discontentness? Because when you can start identifying these attachments, these cravings, then you can work to eliminate them. But how could you ever eliminate them and get to a content mind if you weren't able to identify them? So that's what we're going to talk about on Sunday. So yeah, Max, looking inward is very, very important. Okay. So I wanted to review the Four Noble Truths so that we could just refresh everybody's mind that we are causing our own discontentness if you're experiencing discontentness and that you can eliminate it. That's the whole reason why we're meditating and training the mind. That's the whole reason why you're listening to these Dhamma talks. That's why you're hopefully reading this book and practicing the teachings that are in there. That's why you're doing all of these things is because you're training your mind through learning the teachings, applying the teachings, which includes breathing mindfulness meditation, generosity, which includes practicing loving kindness and practicing loving kindness meditation. By learning and practicing these teachings, you're actively training the mind to improve the condition of the mind. That's essentially what we're doing with all the meditation breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation is we're working to eliminate this poison of craving of anger of ignorance or unknowing of true reality we're working to eliminate this greed hatred delusion or unknowing of true reality so today in today's practice session we're focusing on loving kindness meditation because we're causing the anger, we're causing the hatred, we're causing the ill will, we're causing the frustration, the irritation. The mind is holding on to these discontent emotions and feelings because of this longing and the strong eagerness. So what we're doing with loving kindness meditation is we're essentially undoing that conditioning and training the mind to have this active goodwill without judgment. We're cultivating this loving kindness in the mind. So let me go to the first part that I prepared today, which is a little bit different than I've shared in our other sessions. From the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, I share this with you guys. Loving kindness meditation helps us to eliminate hatred, anger, ill will, frustration, irritation, annoyances, dislike, and cultivate a mind that has loving kindness or goodwill towards all beings, thus removing the poison of hatred or anger. Okay, Loving kindness meditation is actively cultivating. Remember, meditation is an active training of the mind through an independent dedicated training session. So we're actively cultivating in the mind this active goodwill towards all beings where we're working to remove hatred, anger, and ill will. Okay. And in order to do loving kindness meditation, you should first start with breathing mindfulness meditation to bring the mind into the present moment or singleness of mind, and then start practicing loving kindness meditation. You can just do loving kindness meditation by itself. You know, if you've only got five, 10, 15 minutes, 
maybe that's what you want to do is just jump into a session of loving kindness meditation. But if you have plenty of time and you kind of want to get better results out of your loving kindness meditation, what you should do is practice breathing mindfulness meditation first. Even if that's just three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, just kind of ease into loving kindness meditation by bringing the mind to the breath and creating that singleness of mind where you can let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of thoughts, ideas, and perceptions, bring the mind to the breath, and then after you've done that for some period of time, three, five, 10, 15 minutes, however long you'd like to do it, then you start with loving kindness meditation. And today what I'm going to do is I'm gonna start with chanting, and then I'll lead you guys into breathing mindfulness meditation for whatever period of time, in order to bring singleness of mind and start to cut down that craving. And then we'll move into loving kindness meditation and then ultimately finish up with a chant. But for those of you guys that haven't joined this meditation session before, let me share with you what I'm going to be doing during loving kindness meditation because you're gonna actually need to be doing this. By me actually leading and guiding the loving kindness meditation, is okay, but you actively need to do something during meditation. Just like when we get into breathing mindfulness meditation and you're actively training the mind to let go of the past, let go of the future, focus on the breath, letting go of the thoughts, ideas, and perceptions, focusing on the breath, you're actively doing that with the mind. When we get into loving kindness meditation, you need to actively do something with the mind to change your condition of the mind. Loving kindness meditation is not a wish for others to be loving and kind for us. And it's also not us kind of praying or wishing others to be more loving and kind. This is all about training our mind to have loving kindness or active goodwill. So when we're actually meditating, you guys should be doing something actively with the mind. And what I'm going to be doing when we get into loving kindness meditation is I'm going to be using these affirmations. I'm gonna start in the middle where I'm gonna say, may I be peaceful. And I'm gonna say that on my out breath. And when you hear me say that, you should say it in your mind, okay? You say it in your mind, may I be peaceful. And then I'm going to say out loud, may I be safe. And then you say that in your mind. It's an affirmation that you're cultivating, may I be safe. And then I'm going to say, may I be well, may I be free of all discontentness and the suffering it causes. So if I was doing this on my own and I wasn't guiding you guys in meditation, you wouldn't hear anything from me. The only reason why I'm speaking is because I'm leading and guiding the meditation. But if I was doing this alone, you wouldn't know that I was actually doing loving kindness meditation because what breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation looks like from the outside is just gonna be somebody sitting there breathing through the nose. So I'm gonna be saying these first affirmations. There's four affirmations there and we always start with I with you, because you're in the middle, 
right? You can't cultivate loving kindness and practice loving kindness for other people if you don't have loving kindness for yourself. So this really helps cut down like negative self-talk. This helps cut down any hostility you hold for yourself, any guilt or resentment or frustration you feel for yourself. You're cultivating this active goodwill for yourself. Having a genuine wish, may I be peaceful, may I be safe, may I be well, may I be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. You know, in our culture, oftentimes we're taught that we need to take care of everybody else before we take care of ourselves. But we know where that leads. It leads to an empty gas tank and you're depleted. So you got to fill up yourself first with active goodwill. Then we expand into these rings where we make wider and wider and wider rings. On this slide, I've used very simple, may we be peaceful, may we be safe, may we be well, may we be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. And then the third ring is may all beings be peaceful. Right, But when we actually do this in meditation, I'm probably going to do more than just these three rings. But you should always start with I, meaning yourself, and you should always finish with all beings. So you can create different rings here as you wish. You can create rings based on relationships like your family, your loved ones, the people that are around you, your coworkers, the people in your neighborhood. You, know, you can get further and further out. Uh, you can do it. Some people do it based on like a geographic. They'll say, may I be peaceful? May I be safe? May everyone in my town or my city, my state be peaceful. And then they might go further and further out from there. You can do this in many different ways. You can kind of have a little bit of creativity about how you choose to create these rings. And what you do is completely up to you. So you'll get a chance to experience how I'm doing this today. And we'll start with may I, and then I'll go to we, meaning all of us that are participating in this meditation. And then I'll go further beyond that, beyond uh, just us. And then ultimately I will end with all beings. Okay. So any questions on what we're going to do during the meditation? It doesn't appear so, David. We actually lost you there for about 30 seconds. Yeah, I saw that. No worries. But I think we, we got the... Uh, we got the, um, got the instructions pretty clearly, so I think we are good to go. Okay, so let's go ahead and go into some meditation then. So go ahead and take your position wherever that is, seated or lying or standing. Make the physical body comfortable. The physical body needs to be comfortable. So if you're sitting on the floor, you might want to sit cross-legged with your rear up in the air, opening up your hips and your knees. If you're sitting in a chair, just sit on a chair with your feet either flat or crossed. Wherever you're sitting, if you're sitting, make sure you're using your own muscles with your upper body. This will engage your muscles and keep your mind active and attentive during the meditation because you need that active, attentive mind in order to train the mind actively through meditation. So use your upper body muscles. Your hands and your arms, you can place those together with your back of your palm on top of your other palm, your thumbs together, 
and you can place those in your lap if you like, or just put your hands on your lap, palm down or on your knees or something like that. And if you'd like to do the chanting with me, you're welcome to do the chanting. And then I'll guide you guys in breathing mindfulness meditation, then we'll do loving kindness meditation, and then we'll go into some more chanting to finish it off. So just focus on the breath. Arahang Sama Samoto Mahakawa Otang Mahakawandang Apiwate Ami Sawakato Mahakawata Tamo Tamang Namasami Supatipano Bhakavato Savakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samputasa Napmodhasabhakavato Arahato Samputasa Napmodhasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Iti Piso we cha charanang sam huno sakato roka vitu anu tero purisa dama sati satatava manu sanang Puto Pakavati Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. You should be taking nice natural breaths. Not trying to control or force the breath. Just nice, natural breath. As you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, focus the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of the air entering into the nose. That's the fixed position that you're fixing the mind on the breath. That's the present moment. 
training the mind to come into the present moment. So just take a minute or so and establish that nice breath, focusing the mind on the breath. And then I'll come back with some more guidance. Now that you've got the breath established, you're focusing the mind on the breath. As the mind likes to go to the past or to the future, just cut it off and bring the mind to the breath. Just let it go. Focus the mind on the breath, the present moment. If there's thoughts or ideas, perceptions that come into the mind, just let them go. Cut them off. Bring the mind to the breath, to the present moment. You have nowhere to go, nothing to do, No one needs you right now. Just focus the mind on the breath and notice how all the thoughts and sensations in the body are all impermanent. There's nothing that's permanent.
Now that the minds come more into the present moment, recognizing impermanence and starting to eliminate the poison of craving, now we'll move into loving-kindness meditation. Start to work on the poison of hatred, anger, ill will. Just repeat this affirmation in the mind when you get to your out-breath. May I be peaceful. Be safe. May I be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. peaceful. safe. May we be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes.
may all those who are close to me be peaceful. May they be well. May they be safe. May they be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. acquaintances be peaceful May they be safe. May they be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. in the world that I will never meet. May they all be peaceful.
May they all be safe. May they all be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. peaceful. May they all be safe. May they all be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes. May they all be well. be safe. May they all be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes.
may all beings, no matter where they are, either known or unknown, may they all be peaceful. May they all be well. May they all be safe. free of discontentness and the suffering that it causes. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawa Potang Mahakawanang Apiva Temi Savakato Mahakawata Tamo Tamang Namasami Supatipano Pakavato Savakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmodhasapakavato Arahato Sama Samputasa Napmodhasapakavato 
ಅರ್ಹತಸ್ಮಸಂಪುತ out of meditation just gonna slowly come back see Maya taking a nice little stretch there <laughs> move your head side to side yep. just kind of come back alright so not sure how long we were meditating because as you guys know I, I don't time meditation there's no need to really time it just do it for whatever amount of time that you need I probably would have normally done a longer breathing mindfulness meditation but I usually kind of shorten those for these talks and our time together the point of the the talk and our time together is loving kindness meditation so I kind of get into that a little bit more readily but in my own practice when I used to do loving kindness meditation a lot I used to do much longer breathing mindfulness meditations um, so I would suggest for you two guys to expand that don't use what I did today kind of as a guide so feel free to do you know 10 15 20 minutes of breathing mindfulness meditation before you move into loving kindness meditation you can even do things like walking meditation first and then sit down and do loving kindness meditation you can do lying or standing position breathing mindfulness meditation and then go into loving kindness meditation lots of different options here you do what feels right and what feels like is working you've got the four positions seated lying standing and walking so you can do breathing mindfulness meditation in any of those positions and then you've got loving kindness meditation which we normally do in either seated lying or standing we don't usually do that one in walking position it's not really something i've ever done but doesn't mean you can't do that you can try it and see what you think but these are the really the only two meditations that you need as part of your journey to enlightenment is breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation the other two are specialized meditations that are optional that are only really used in special situations and not everybody would need those 
but these two everybody will absolutely need. So I suggest you use breathing mindfulness meditation as kind of your standard meditation that you do all the time, every day, once, twice, three times a day, and then add in loving kindness meditation, especially if you're having trouble with anger or hatred or ill will or frustration or irritation, you're just having maybe resentment, maybe you're having trouble forgiving people in your life that have done harm to you and you're having trouble forgiving them and you don't have active goodwill towards all beings. Maybe you see somebody on the street, either a stranger or somebody you know, and you just don't have active goodwill for them. You just haven't progressed in your training that far. Then you should be doing loving kindness meditation every day along with your breathing mindfulness meditation because you want to get ahead of this poison, right? You got to draw this poison out. Don't only do this meditation when you're angry. You can do it then, but it's kind of like already arised. The anger's already arisen. What you really want to do is you want to be doing this even during the times where you're not angry for a week or two or a month where you're not angry at all. You want to be doing this to kind of get ahead of this and drawing this poison of anger and hatred out of the mind. So work with these meditations, breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation. Commit yourself to a daily practice of these and you'll notice benefit. In each one of these sessions, each Wednesday at nine o'clock Thai time, you can come here and you can ask questions about what's going on in your practice, certain things that are happening in your practice, certain things you want to explore, certain feedback or guidance that you need that you're not sure of. This is the time to be able to do that and ask questions. And then on Sunday, we're going to go into each chapter of the book. This Sunday, we're on chapter 12, Identifying Attachments, Practicing Non-Clinging. And we'll do a Dhamma talk on Sunday. And then next Wednesday, we're going to do chanting again. We're going to explore chanting and get you guys further along in your chanting practice, if that's something that you would like to explore. So do we have any questions, Max? Yeah, from uh, what you were saying just then about getting ahead of the curve, I think is really useful. So not just practicing loving kindness to abandon anger that has already ridden, but also using it as a way to prevent it from arising and to cultivate the, the active positive mind state of loving kindness. One thing I've been doing recently is just wishing well in my mind to people as I walk around. So just as I'm walking down the street, as I'm That's walking perfect. down the beach here in Brighton, just saying it in my mind, just saying the exact same thing, may you be well. Mm -hmm. uh, saying it in my mind to the birds that I see. Uh, and I find it has much the same effect. It sounds like um, my question has already been answered here, which is, is this um, a good way to practice? Is this a yeah, this is excellent, Max, because say you spend 20, 30, 45 minutes, an hour on your cushion meditating, you know, over, you know, a couple of days or two or three times a day. That's great. And that's wonderful. But if you can move the teachings into daily life, doing things like what you just talked about, that's perfect because you're just cultivating more of that active goodwill. I used to do this like um, 
say like I was in a conversation with somebody, and I actually still kind of do it a little bit now. Like if I'm in a conversation with somebody and somebody's being really hostile and I'm not going to allow my mind to go there, in my mind, I'm just thinking, may you be well, may you be peaceful, may you be safe. Just thinking in my mind uh, um, towards this other person. And then sometimes, you know, I might engage, I might talk further, I might respond, but sometimes after the hostility or during the hostility, I just walk away. Um, if that, it, I, that doesn't happen to me anymore, but it used to happen. <laughs> and then as I'm walking away, I'm just thinking in my mind, may you be peaceful, may you be well, may you be safe, may you be free of discontentness. And essentially when you're saying, may you be free of discontentness and the suffering it causes, you're essentially saying, may you attain enlightenment. Right? May you practice these teachings and attain the results of enlightenment. So getting ahead of the curve and doing the things that you're talking about, like to the birds, to the people on the beach as you're walking, just actively cultivating that mind. Or even in situations where people are hostile and you feel the anger starting to arise, you can just try to cut it off and let it go. And you can also kind of reiterate these affirmations in the mind as a way to kind of like keep that anger at bay and any kind of hostility that might be rising up. That's a great tip. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I've not had many opportunities to practice in quite that way recently, but uh, no doubt they will come at some point, I'm sure. One thing I find about the practice of loving kindness really is that it's, it allows you to really see people more clearly, mm -hmm. I find. And so you know that when you are able to see them clearly, if someone is becoming hostile and angry and you know that you're acting with right intention and you know that you're acting with loving kindness, then you know it's something that they have in their mind. You know it is a defilement that they hold. Yeah. And so it makes it much more possible to actually act with compassion, not take it personally because you know you've acted with right intention. And sometimes yeah. that means you know, maybe <clears throat> getting in the way of someone else's attachment but as long as you're acting, acting yourself with right intention and not doing harm, then you know that this anger is coming from the other person. Yeah, It makes it a lot easier to deal with those situations, see them more clearly. Yeah, and some things that you can do to kind of combine some of these teachings, right? Like we know like generosity is good to eliminate craving, and we know we need to practice loving kindness, which is active goodwill without judgment to eliminate this hatred or anger. So not that everyone has to do this, but if you've ever done this where like maybe you see a, a homeless person on the street and you want to, you know, give some food or give some money or like here in Thailand, I usually take them to a restaurant and sit down with them and let them order food. And then I kind of talk to them and spend time with them and ask them some questions and kind of spend a little bit of time with them. This is generosity because you're sharing your money, your time, your effort, but you're also practicing active goodwill without judgment where, you know, I'm sitting in a restaurant with a person who has dirty clothes on, you know, rough hair and face. And I know other people are looking at me and tourists, particularly, you know, Thai people know what I'm doing, but tourists will be looking at me and probably pretty curious about what I'm doing and why I'm with this person. But for me, I'm treating this person just like I would sit down and have lunch with you, Max, or somebody else, treating them as a human being and, you know, 
being polite, being kind, being patient. I just happen to be sharing my, some of my money, some of my time, some of my effort. And so you're practicing generosity, but you're also practicing loving kindness, active goodwill without judgment at the same time. And this can be really, these kind of things can be really beneficial for you. That, it, that you're not doing it because anybody told you to do it. You're not doing it because you're taking pictures to post it on Facebook and show everybody that you've taken this homeless person out to lunch. Not that you're doing it out of ego or pride that you want everybody to see you doing it, but just because you feel like that's a good thing to do. And I just give this one example. There's many examples, I mean, that you could do stuff like this, um, whether it's spending time with like we have a neighbor across the street who's Chinese and he has a little daughter that's about three years old. I'll invite her over, let her come into the house. We'll share some food with her. and We'll tell the parents, go back to their house and relax because she's pregnant again. She's having another child. And we're like, oh, we'll take care of this one. It's okay, you go. So, you know, we're sharing loving kindness and generosity and practicing the teachings even with a three-year-old child, right? It doesn't have to always be a homeless person. It can be everybody in your life without judgment active goodwill without judgment you know there's security guards a lot of times at different places where you go in thailand and in thailand sometimes people look at certain occupations as being below or above each other and we will buy like a drink like a soy milk or some water or some food or some fruit and we'll give that to the security guards as a way of practicing generosity and oftentimes when I come in and out of the village I will wind my window down and why to the security guard or I'll wave to them and smile or I'll stop the car and I'll ask them like how's your day going how's everything going oh where's your wife how's your wife been I haven't seen her for a while you know just chat even if it's just like one minute or two minute um, that's another way of, of practicing generosity and loving kindness is just being generous with your time and showing people that you're genuinely interested in them and you have this active goodwill and you're curious about them and their family and their children and you build up these relationships in your community through practicing generosity, through practicing loving kindness, and then all of a sudden you've got this really warm environment that you inhabit where you walk down the street, everybody on the street knows who you are, you've talked to them, you've spent time with them, or you've just maybe smiled and waved to them, and they smile and wave to you. This is gamma. Whereas if I walked down the street and I was disgruntled and I looked at the ground and I was sad face all the time and uh, just kind of nasty when i walk down the street it's going to be a pretty miserable walk but if you walk down the street and you're smiling and talking to people or even just smiling and moving on your way some days you talk maybe some days you don't that is going to be such an enjoyable walk every time you go down the street because you've got all these friends you might not even know what their name is you don't even know much about them but whenever you walk down the street, you just always are pleasant to everybody around you. And this will also help with any shyness. If you have any shyness, it will help eliminate that. So this is what we mean by practicing the teachings. A lot of times people think what practicing the teachings means is sitting on your cushion and doing meditation. Well, yeah, that is practicing the teachings. 
sitting on your cushion and doing meditation. But also, like I just described, walking down the street, being polite and kind and friendly and generous and spending time with the three-year-old neighbor, spending time with the homeless person, spending time saying hello to the taxi drivers or whatever. This is practicing. This is practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha where you are eliminating the craving, anger, and ignorance by practicing generosity, by practicing loving kindness, and by using the wisdom of these teachings to practice in this way. So you're developing a life practice which involves meditation that you do to actively train the mind each day, but then you carry these teachings with you in a daily life practice where when you're out and about, you're practicing the teachings. Yeah, it's really helpful, really great stuff. And it's worth remembering that it costs nothing to to smile at someone, to wave at someone. It's just a little bit of right effort. And I feel mm. like all the things worth having in the world really on some level come about because someone at some point decided to be generous with their time, with their money, mm. with their energy. And uh, it's funny how a lot of modern self-help books or personal development books often talk about this kind of thing. And Buddha was saying this over two and a half thousand years ago, mm -hmm. right? right effort, practice generosity. It's all about eliminating the unwholesome states of greed and cultivating the wholesome qualities of generosity, love and kindness. Yeah, I mean, if you were going to like summarize this, right, it's like being a polite, kind, respectful, generous, appreciative, friendly, kind person i mean positive person right like everybody enjoys being around those kinds of people and this is why the more you practice in this way you will see the gamma by you making the decision to treat other people around you this way even when they're hostile you're being kind polite and respectful even when they're angry and disgruntled and whatever you're still being kind polite respectful you will see that over time people will observe that and you will have more and more healthy relationships in your life whether that's on a personal level or a professional level and your life will just continue to improve and improve and improve because people aren't going to do negative things towards you because they see you as a friendly polite kind positive respectful appreciative person and then for you, you're not taking any exception with it because you know that's them and they're just being hostile and no need for you to get angry just because they're being hostile or no need for you to get frustrated just because they're being unkind or unpolite. Just maintain your content mind. I always say that an enlightened mind only needs to walk with their wisdom and a smile. That's all we need is, is just the wisdom and a smile. We just walk down the street with wisdom and a smile. Anything else is just noise, right? So that's all we need is just wisdom and a smile. The land of smiles, Thailand. <laughs> all right. I like that. Well, I think it's about the end of class time today. So I will wish all of you guys well and uh, encourage you guys to continue your meditation practice of breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation. Continue to read the book. This week we're in chapter 11. 
On Sunday, we're going to chapter 12, which is identifying attachments, and just keep continuing to learn, continuing to practice the teachings on the cushion, but in your daily life as well. And remember, this is the very best thing you could ever do for yourself, for those close to you, and for all of humanity. So have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you on Sunday at 9 o'clock Thai time. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.